It seems like as humans we are obsessed with defining ourselves. Identities have quickly become labels and vice versa. But the way I see it, human beings are much more complex, ever evolving and at times contradictory. My name is Sadia Khan. I'm fascinated by our relationship to our identities and different stories we are creating around them. I explore all of these dynamics on my podcast Immigrantly. We drop new episodes every Tuesday. We are available wherever you get your podcasts. The Big Light presents Hello, I'm Sean McDonald. You're listening to Blethered, and my guest is author, television writer, and journalist Neil Forsyth. Neil tells me about how he started out in journalism and the weird and wonderful adventures he found himself on when writing features for the now defunct Lads Mags of the late 90s and early 2000s. We talk about his first book, Other People's Money about a Glaswegian Elliot Castro who lived the millionaire's lifestyle through credit card fraud. We discussed Neil's work as a screenwriter, including the critically acclaimed and multiple award-winning drama Guilt on the BBC. And you'll also hear the hilarious and almost unbelievable story of how Neil, Gordon Smart and actor Ralph Little all have international football caps and, as always, much more. Cheers. Just a quick word. If you're working from home just now during the pandemic, maybe you're fighting with people in the house over Wi-Fi or space to work, you're finding that working home or merging into one and it's starting to drive you a bit mental, have a wee look at Clockwise. That's where I've got an office in Glasgow City Centre. I've been working here for just over a month now and it's been absolutely amazing uh, with how much it's helped me to focus and, and regain a wee bit of clarity. I've got an office. There's offices to rent. There's hot desks, very cheap each month. There's unlimited Wi-Fi, 24-hour access. If you've got a hot desk, you've got your own allocated desk and storage right in the middle of town. So it's easy to get to and they're modern and comfortable offices as well. Get in touch with Clockwise via email and quote Sean McDonald Blether to them and they'll talk you through what options are available. The links to that are available in the episode notes or you can just Google them. Definitely worth a look. Cheers. Somebody I've been dying to speak to for ages, busier than Gordon Smart and that's saying something. So I've finally got you. Neil, how are you doing, mate? I'm great. Thanks for having me, Sean. Sorry it took a week while to sort out. Not at all, not at all. Obviously really busy. Things um, it's things like guilt to series two starting. We'll get there, but what we will do is start off with the very root of it all, growing up in Dundee. We went to school in Dundee. How was how was life? How was upbringing, your upbringing? Because it's not, it's not very Hollywoody. <laughs> it was great, yeah. It was a brilliant place to grow up. You kind of, you appreciate it more the older you get really i grew up in Broughty ferry which is a suburb of dundee at the kind of mouth of the river and really idyllic a little spot and just loved it yeah i loved it you know playing football playing sport going to watch united and man it's just a it's a great city it was a, it was a it's not like dundee is now you know dundee now has become quite gentrified and and mm. sort of trendy with the vna and the, the waterfront and everything it's and it was uh it didn't look like that. It didn't look like that then. It was um, days. Yeah, it was a very. It was quite a grey and sort of challenging city, and but it just the people were just brilliant. I, I loved it. It's still, it's still my favourite place in the world, and the the humour of it and everything else. So no, I, I, I'm very, very grateful for having for having grown up as a Dundonian. Mm-hmm. You know, like you, obviously your life has changed a lot. Yeah. You're, you're in LA in Sasha Baron Cohen's house having dinner with him or lunch with him and his wife and you're discussing, you know, I, I think was that, we'll, we'll, we will come to that, but I, I think you were discussing the possible licensing of the script for guilt. Um, no, I did, no the, that Sasha Baron Cohen story has grown. I think it's going to say, I'm sorry, I was in his house. He wasn't there though. All oh, right. There. <laughs> oh, were you, do you have a balaclava on and a swag bag over your shoulder? I, pretty much. No, I was working on his... I was working with this production company and 
I just spent a week there working in his pool house, but he was he wasn't there, so it was all anyway. very it was all very odd. But uh, no, it was a, not a bad was, setup. What I was going to say about that, though, having that type of experience, it can be really easy to become detached to sort of where you've come from. I mean, do you find that being in Dundee or being back, does it help you keep this tie or like sort of semblance of of where you came from or normality? Does that make sense? Like to have that? Uh, yeah, well, I, th- I think. Thing is, when you're a writer, is you ninety five percent of the time you're just working in your house. So you have these little little bursts of uh, of you, know, you can be around quite exciting situations or you know, people that you might work with and things. But you know, you're not you're not an actor. You don't spend your time going from corseted set up on a hotel or a film set to film set or anything like that. You're you're you're, you're largely in your house battering away at the laptop and trying to work something out. So I, I think it's, uh, it, it's, it's, it doesn't change the job. Strangely, the job doesn't change that much as you kind of hopefully mm-hmm. move up, move up the levels with really. the. Well, to go back to your, your initial experience with writing, was it the Dundee United fanzine? Is that your first thing? Yeah. Well, I, I always loved writing at school. It was always the subject I was best at. I was a big reader when I was young. My granddad had this, huge sort of library of books in his house and I used to plough through them and it was what I was I was really interested in and um and then at Dundee United well I I was I went to the games from from a young age my big brother Alan kind of let me go with him and his pals and um you you'd be too young for this Sean but when I was there was a huge football fancy movement at this time this is sort of late 80s mm. early 90s every club would have half a dozen Fanzines. There'd have to be more than one fanzine getting sold outside the ground at the time, and mm. um, uh, the, I, I collected them from all over Britain. But I really wanted to try and write for one. And the big Dungeon United one was called the Final Hurdle. It sold. It was selling about four thousand issues, you know, a game. But I was a bit intimidated by them, so I wrote to them. But there was this little, this little one called When the Hoodoo Comes, which was the Falkirk Arabs. What often happened was each supporters club would have a fanzine and they'd sell right, it, on okay. their, sell it, on, they'd bring it on their bus to the games and sell outside. So, Glasgow Arabs had a fanzine, Edinburgh Arabs had one, and the Falkirk Arabs had this one called When the Hoodoo Comes. And I wrote to them, and I wrote for them, and it was just, it was amazing, you know, like seeing my name and the contributors. I was twelve, I think, twelve or thirteen, mm. and I used to sell it outside Tannadice, and I mostly. To Roy of the Rovers uh, comic strips, right. and I tipexed out the speech bubbles, and wrote in horrific, abusive Dundee players, <laughs> uh, and that was uh, incredi- incredibly uh, illegal, rampaging over about three different copyrights. So that was how I made my my writing debut. Um, I used to sell it outside the ground. It was a, uh, I had quite a, it had quite a tragic end. That fanzine actually the. So I wrote for him for a year or two, and it was a great two two really good lads from Falkirk called Scott and Norrie. And I remember going up one day. We used to sell at the bottom of South Tay Street, and and they were built. They built up this little kitty of money, of money. And I went up one day, and they were standing there. They they, they already looked nervous, and because a raid around their feet, they had uh, two hundred and fifty garden gnomes. Uh, Painted in Dundee United colours, right? <laughs> and I said, and these are, you know, about a foot tall, maybe garden gnomes. And I said, what's, um, you know, what's the story with the gnomes, lads? And I remember, I remember Scott saying, we're all in, right? And he was fucking, he was already looking a bit pale. And they'd basically spunked to the kitty on these gnomes. And this was going to be a big, anyway, so 200, so we stood there, 250 gnomes around our feet. This is about two o'clock. Cut to five to three. The three of us, 250 garden gnomes. <laughs> oh, <laughs> and two devastated men from Falkirk. And, uh, yeah, a poor business choice. That was kind of it. I mean, it was ill thought out and various. I mean, the idea that someone's, eight, first of all, going to buy a gnome, then take it to the game with them. <laughs> uh, but anyway, but they just, anyway, that was kind of the end. I remember them, them just mournfully. Loading these gnomes into the back of Scott's car. You're going to need to find a way to write that scene into something that you're creating because there's just the, the visual comedy of that, the pure sadness. We'll take this jolly wee gnome back into the, the back of a car. That's amazing. And then the drive back to Falkirk every time they looked in the rear view mirror and saw the <laughs> <laughs> 
Brilliant, brilliant. The, uh, was it, so you went to Edinburgh Uni, didn't you? Were you yeah. studying journalism? Because I know you did work as a journalist to begin with. No, I, I did politics. I kind of, I wish I'd done in, I wish I'd done something like English literature or, or you know, journalism, but I didn't. So it was strange. I'd kind of done, I just didn't really have the confidence, you know. It's hard sometimes when you're young to say you want to do something that's yeah. creative. It can feel a wee bit indulgent or out of the norm for where you're from or whatever, you know. So I kind of, I kind of fobbed it a bit and did this sort of more general degree. And I kind of, I wish I hadn't really, but anyway, there you go. So, um, yeah, no, I did that. I did. And I, I can't mean, I wasn't massively academically applied, to be honest. I played for the football team at Edinburgh Uni, which was great fun. That was, um, played in the East of Scotland League and at the time. Um, so that was, that was probably my favourite, favourite memories of, of the four years there. It's probably not something you say, you're saying there that kind of resonated with me a bit, but finding it self-indulgent to do something creative. Um, let's just, obviously you've kind of walked that path now, but let's just say there's somebody listening who who maybe feels the same. Maybe they think they would like to do something creative, but either through societal expectations or maybe what the family want for them, they're a wee bit reluctant. I mean, what would your advice or what would your words be to, to somebody who's at that sort of crossroads? Um, it's really difficult because it's... Um... You know, I think that when you're young, and maybe when I was younger, if you, if you say you want to do something that's um, quite maybe bold and creative and you know it's going to be really difficult, you understand why parents or whoever might be, as much as they might want to support you, might also be a little little fearful of it. Um, but the way I always, you know, a lot of people might get in touch with me about wanting to write. And I just think it's brilliant. Then do it, and definitely, definitely do it. But there's no harm whatsoever in doing a day job, you know, for as long or a day, you know, for for as long as you possibly can, giving yourself a bit of a bit of security, um, and letting writing be fun for as long as it can be something that yeah. you do on the side. Because when you put yourself under the financial pressure, I remember the day when I kind of. I worked in a pub for a long time and eventually I just got to that point, which we might get to my first book, where I was like, hey, do you know what? I'm just going to jack it in and stand. And it's it's terrifying, you know? Um, so I, I would say always, always pursue anything you want to do creatively. And, but most importantly, do it out of enjoyment and anything else that comes out of it will be a bonus. Yeah, I, I would completely agree with that. I feel like it often becomes a bit of a binary issue. You're either completely... Both, both like both feet firmly in the real world, or you've your head firmly in the clouds. But it's possible to have your feet in the ground and your head in the clouds, as you say, by that combination of of a day job or whatever it is to keep you ticking over while doing what you're doing. And I, if there's no enjoyment for it, if you're doing it purely because you think it's a means to fame or a quick fortune, then it's never going to pan out that way. It's, it really, it really goes from point A and then point B being total success. It's usually a total haphazard maze of knockbacks and rejections and failures to you until you finally get there. Aye, and what, uh, and what and what is success? That's the other thing, you know, like people, if someone, if someone write, gets in touch and they've written a book, that's an incredible achievement. Yeah. And it doesn't matter if it stays in a drawer for the rest of your life or maybe you show it to family or friends or maybe you self-publish it or maybe you manage to get a tiny wee publishing deal somewhere. That's, that's a fantastic thing to have done with your life, to... I've sat down and done it. Same with a script, same with anything. You know, the, the achievement in writing is finishing. That's the achievement, um, you know. That, and, and I think people that just go off and, and write in their spare time and, and, and get enjoyment from it and feel that, oh, God, I've worked on that and I've finished it and it's it's something that's there and it's real and I've, I'll always have done that. It's That's achievement in itself, you know. And it, it, a lot of the other ways that you can apply success to a creative career, are, you know, a lot of it's out of your control. And it's uh, you know it can come and go and it's whimsical and everything else. So you know just see see the work itself as an achievement. I think that would be the main thing. Yeah, I totally agree. I, I think the fifth, uh, success to me, I know there are multiple definitions, and I suppose that's the beauty of it. It's different to everybody else. It isn't just black and white. But I would say it's fulfilment, um, enjoying what you're doing. If you can, for the bulk of your time, if you're really enjoying what you're doing and it's resonating deeply with you, then I I think you're winning. Um, working as a freelance journalist was that I mean were you just you've how do you go from politics to 
actually studying politics to then you know working as a journalist? Um, well, I, after after I finished university, I went down to London and worked briefly about a year maybe um, in advertising. I got a kind of graduate entry job in uh, in advertising in London, which I thought was going to be very glamorous, and it was basically data entry. I was a, uh, a media. I'm trying to remember what I was called, media buyer. I mean, so my job was there was this computer system and I had to look up and make sure adverts had gone out in the right slot and then yeah. I ticked, ticked a little box. And that was my job um, day in, day out. And, and, and so, you know, it was great. It was exciting. I moved to London at 21 and loads of pals down there. And, you know, me and my mates set up this Dundee United supporters football team in Sunday morning league and all that, you know, so it was, it was brilliant. But professionally, it was this. But, but the great thing about that is I was tucked away in the corner of this um, huge company, this big office in Tottenham Court Road, and I just sat in the corner and just had to get this really mundane date work done. And no one could see my computer. So this is the early days of the internet. So I started writing for a lot of the early football websites. Um, football 365 was one. It's one called From the Terrace. And I wrote kind of pieces for them, humor things and articles and stuff. So I started to build up a little, and I was just doing this in my work time, you know. So I started <laughs> to build up a little, uh, a little kind of collection of things I could then send people. And it was just always about leveraging these things into something else. So after writing a few articles for that, I wrote a couple of pieces for When Saturday Comes. It's you know great football magazine that's still going. Four four two. Oh yeah. Um, and then it started to do a few pieces. So anyway, I quit that job, went traveling for a year, went back to Edinburgh and I started, so I lived in Edinburgh and worked in a pub and did freelance journalism and that went on for maybe five or six years and I kind of just building up who I wrote for. So I started getting um, shifts from the Scotsman and the Herald and Scotland and Sunday match report, match reports, uh, football match reports, which I fucking loved. That was an amazing job. Yeah. Just, you know, going to the press box and writing your story of the game it was just just before like Wi-Fi would be kind of prevalent, so you you were still phoning the report in at the end of the game, and yeah, I think you had twenty minutes at the end of, by the end of kickoff, you had twenty minutes you had to phone it in. So if there was a last minute goal, you know, you'd, you'd written half of it. It was that was I really really that was just so thrilling. Um, and then I got a few articles from them, and then I wrote for the kind of men's mags. So it was just. It was just what I got really good at was pitching stories. You know, finding a little nugget of something. And then pitching it to a magazine. This could be a feature, and I could interview this person, this person, and sometimes over the phone you'd have to pitch it. And then I got you just build contacts, and you you have to be quite entrepreneurial, really. And mm. and it was good. It was it was you know journalism. It was already not what it was, but there was still some money in that freelance world, and there, there was a lot of places I could go with stories. I wrote for all these men's mags. It was funny. There was you know it was these. It was like FHM and Maxim and Loaded and stuff. But then there was these complete cowboy operations. Remember there was one called Front? You won't remember this. Uh, no, I do. I do remember. They kind of started to fade away, I think, when I was about 16, 17. But I, do, I remember it was like Front, Loaded, Maxim, FHM, Nuts, Zoo. I'm, yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm showing myself up to be a total wee sleaze here, but it's just one of the things at, at the well, time. That, that, that's, I lived through that. I lived through that descent into fucking main bikini-clad nonsense. It was kind of like when I first started for Maxim and FHM, I'd be writing 3,000 word, 3,500 word articles. And the words count just got slowly smaller, you know, as the, and the, as the, the photo spreads got bigger. But Front, I remember Front were, Front were basically run by a couple of Millwall football casuals and these two brothers. And I remember going down, they did all their meetings in this pub in the Elephant and Castle. And he'd go down there and he'd give you, he'd give you a job as if he was ordering you a, Commit a, an, an assassination on so you'd go right, you go, go right, you go, you go down there, right? Gonna ask for Bob, yeah, gonna ask for Bob, I'm gonna go, you could pay you in cash. And it, it'd, be, it'd be like to interview Ricky Hatton at a gym in Bolton or something like this, or you know, that kind of lads mag thing. But it was, uh, it was, and every time you got paid by them, it was a different company name on the checks and things. It was, <laughs> it, was it was great. There was this, it was a proper Wild West atmosphere, right? For them, and, and you know, I learned so much because I'd be doing such different stories week to week and month to month. It was it was really exciting. Do you think that experience kind of shaped the way in which you wanted to 
spend the rest of your career because it's very unpredictable and this, uh, wild mental. It must have been exciting, as you're saying, like constantly just not knowing, you know, what's happened next. Is that is that always in your character, or do you like things to be regimented and and very, um, I don't know what's safe, secure? Because there, there seems to be little safety and security in in mm. doing that type of thing. No, no, well, not in, you know, you get you get older and change your outlook and stuff, and I'm much more uh, much more drawn to uh, safety in the quieter life now. But I was I had a very hedonistic life back then, and that fitted in perfectly. You know, it was it was. You'd go off and do a story. You wouldn't know where you'd end up. And, you know, I would go with bands for a few days of mayhem and try and piece together a story from notes and napkins and things like that. It was, so it was um, it was great fun. Do you know, I went through a, a box recently in the moment, um, men's mag stuff, and I, this chilling photo of me with my arm around Jimmy Savile. Oh, Jesus. <laughs> I, 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 and it was on top of this pile. I was like, what fright I got. And it was, uh, yeah, I interviewed... And him and his flat and in Leeds, but that's the kind of thing you'd go and do that, and then you'd be sent off to do you know happy with a happy Mondays for a couple of days or um, some sort of fun feature, you know, a couple of little foreign trips and things. It was it was really good, but the writing was on the wall, like the, with journalism. Then you could see it, you know, fees were dropping. There was mm-hmm. smaller words count. And then Nuts and Zoo came in, and uh, I was like, oh, look at this. I mean, this is embarrassing. How, how can this be the future of men's mag journalism? About a month later, I'm standing with a Nuts Man <laughs> t-shirt on doing interviews for them, and that was that was the nadir. Like, if you wrote for Nuts, if you did an article for Nuts, you had to wear this t-shirt saying, I'm Nuts Man or something, and yeah. take a foot. And I was thinking, I was, I think I must have been nearly 30 by this point. I was like, this is, can't, be, this can't be the future. I need to get out of there. So... I started. I was always hunting to do something more substantial, I suppose, and a bigger, more long-form story. And that that was, um, well, that would have been Elliot Castro would have been my first thing. Before we do move on to Elliot Castro, I do have a couple of questions about yeah, yeah. the um, about those things. So first of all, right, I I always did think I would read. I would have been maybe like thirteen, fourteen. I'm in, you know, maybe in first year or second year at school, but. Of course, I'm looking at the pictures and I'm very much, I'm all for it as a wee guy. But the articles were always, I always found them to be very good, especially in, because to my memory, Loaded and Maxim and Front and stuff were thicker and it was more like an A4. I think Nuts and Zoo were sort of smaller. And it was almost like, if you were to shut your eyes and hand it to somebody, you could convince them it was Vogue or L Magazine because it was like quite substantial. And there was always really interesting articles. So I guess what's quite funny is I would sit and read them and I could I may well have been reading stuff that you'd written and going, this is absolutely brilliant. And then we go completely full circle because here in 2020, I'm now asking you about it. I remember the nuts thing. It was a white t-shirt. We sent our nuts man to test yeah. blah, blah, blah. And I kind of started to descend, descend into a bit of lunacy or, or, or seeming more amateur. What I don't get though is the market and the demand for the content is most certainly still there. And I wonder if, because they were sort of cowboy outfits, that was why they didn't have the foresight to sort of transcend into the digital sphere because people still read those articles. People read Vice articles and, and you know, sort of other things. So uh, it's... Um, I think probably a lot of what the the offer would, would just now be on the internet for free, particularly sort of Nuts and Zoo, which was just quick you know, quick pieces and, and kind of soft porn, basically. I think it was a, but they, they kind of destroyed, they destroyed the, the men's magazine market. Um, They just, they changed it and then they, they kind of just cannibalized it and then it just went. It doesn't really exist anymore. And, but there was some, there was great, great writing in those, in those magazines, FHM, because they were funny. It was funny articles and to write a funny to write to write an article, say three thousand words, that's a good story and funny, is 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 hard. You know, I think, uh, and and there's there's a lot of writers from those magazines that have gone on to do interesting things and you know books and telly and stuff like that. What? How? How was the Savile thing? Like, what were you even doing? I know he was very famous and people. Just went, we, just went, we just went and, and interviewed. I mean, these are the, the, these are the kind of things that you would you'd phone up. Front that was probably front, and you'd say if you if you interviewed Jimmy Savile, and they'd say, "Oh, I think we did it a couple of years ago." But yeah, we could probably do another Jimmy Savile, you know. And then you'd go up with the photographer and 
get two hours of his time, he'd tell you the same anecdotes he's told for 20 years and get a few photos and get out. But I remember it being really, really odd. I remember um, it was, I don't know if you ever saw the Louis Theroux documentary with him. The one, the original or the second one? The original one. So he went yeah. to his flat, he had this penthouse flat in Leeds, um, Savile, and that was where Louis Theroux, I think, stayed actually with him. But, so we went there and he was just, you know, he's obviously horrific crimes as it turned out, but he was just a weird guy. And remember, he'd only had Kit Kats in his fridge, stuff like that. His bedroom was all sort of leopard skin. And, um, you know, he had a, he came down and showed us his Ferrari and talked about how the, the woman loved it and everything. It was all, it was just all pretty. You just think it's a seedy, strange dude, you know, but it was, um, I can't, you know, that, but that, You'd be doing about two or three of them a week, so I can't remember a huge amount of it. But that the photo was absolutely chilling. I think uh, too scared to destroy it in case the bin man finds it. Oh, I would, I would, I would love to see that. I promise, it, I promise it won't go anywhere if you show me it. Um, the so is that how you met Elliot Castro? Through did you cover him in like an article? Yeah, so I. I, I so I was what, what I did a lot of is find stuff in Scottish newspapers, like a, a little story investigate it a bit and then pitch it to one of these bigger magazines set in London and go and write a longer version of the story. And that's what happened with Elliot. There was just a tiny piece in the Scotsman. I think it said something like teenage con man jailed. And it was just the very top line of his story, which was that he'd um, been convicted for credit card fraud that they suspected was hundreds of thousands of pounds. And he'd spent it going around the world. And he was, I think he was 20, wasn't he? When he got caught, he was only 20. And then, um, and it seemed like a really interesting story and wrote him in prison and he went back and forth for a while um, and then agreed for me to kind of go and interview him. So, yeah, I wrote it for Maxim to start with. It was a kind of bigger article. But he was in Ford Open Prison in, in Sussex. And I remember going down. He's such a fascinating, fascinating man, Elliot, and, and unique individual. Anyway, he, it was an open prison. And I was saying, is this allowed? Like, and I said, so shall I try and apply through the magazine? He went, no, 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 don't do that, don't do that. So I went down and I think he'd said I was his uncle or something. And uh, so sign him out for the afternoon from open prison. And I remember it was this form and he said, just, just sign it, sign it, just sign it, just sign it. And it was, I think he said it was his uncle and that we were doing some sort of training. He was going to some sort of training program. So anyway, basically went to Brighton and had about six pints and then went back to went back in the taxi and dropped him off at prison again. It was... Uh, right, so for people, I suppose I should have said as well, for people who aren't aware, so this is a this is a guy who basically, as you kind of have pointed out, committed credit card fraud to the tune of like hundreds of thousands, if not maybe millions, and then yeah. got caught for it. Yeah, he, he's, he's, he was, it's a really interesting story. He, he, was, he was, grew up in Battlefield and he had a kind of tough upbringing in lots of different ways. Very badly bullied. I think he went to five or six schools in Glasgow. Left school without any qualifications, even though he was he's a prodigiously intelligent kid and autodidact to this huge amount of self-gained knowledge and very curious about the world. And he had his photographic memory. He was just a very bright kid that just sort of slipped through the system. And he ended up working at a call centre in Glasgow when he was 15 or 16. And he, he hit upon this form of credit card fraud uh, that initially started relatively primitively and he just kept embellishing it and tweaking it and adding to it and he quit his job and went around the world uh, for about five years staying a sort of you know extravagant lifestyle funded by what was undoubtedly millions of pounds worth of credit card fraud mm-hmm. and he he was caught a couple of times he did a bit of time in prison in Canada and he was chased chased by this one detective from Heathrow, this guy called Ralph Eastgate. Um, and it's just a really twisting story, like near near misses, escapes. He had one incredible escape from custody and things and eventually got caught at, um, in Harvey Nichols in Edinburgh. He got caught there and uh, and went to, went to prison. And it was so, it, it got, but it just got a little bit of coverage because it was a strange story. It was a, it was an odd story, but not a huge amount came out of the trial. And it was only when I got in touch with them that I kind of started to get all the paperwork from the trial and realise everything that had happened. That's nuts. The um, uh, there's, a, there's a couple of questions I was going to ask. I suppose the first one, for anybody who would like to read your book, where can they find it and what is the title? Because it is a 
utterly fascinating story. Uh, that well, that book's got other people's money. It's uh, I mean, it's about ten, twelve years old. It's still kicking about. I think it was. Um, it's still in print. You can still you still get it. But it's um, yeah, that that was. It was the most shoplifted book in Scotland when it came out. I remember you telling me that. Yeah. That, is, that is a brilliant accolade. Uh, it's great. It's great because yeah. you, you still get paid if they if they nick it because the uh, the, the shop still has to cover the royalty. But um, and it was really popular, really popular in prisons. I went I went into quite a few. Went into Berlin and Sochten and a few others and did sort of boot clubs about it and things. It was um, yeah, really. It's an interesting story because people like that don't know the vicarious living vicariously through somebody doing these mental things and. And, and reckless things, and the fact that it's somebody. I mean, you say, do you mean Battlefield in the south side of Glasgow? Yeah, yeah. So he's literally just feel like over the water for where I'm sitting right now. It's like because uh, I mean, everybody loves Catch Me If You Can, the Frank Abagnale Junior yeah. story, uh, and to think that that's just somebody in Glasgow that's doing that is is brilliant. Oh, he, I mean, used, to, he used to do stuff when he was young, like get the train from Battlefield into into would that be into Central with it from there? But and he used to forge tickets. Um, this is when he was like 10, 11 years old. He, he somehow got a book of blank tickets from Battlefield Station, I think, when the guy wasn't looking. And he had this, he got this old typewriter and he used to forge his train tickets when he was 10, 11 years old to go into that's, town. That is genius. I mean, I used to do similar when I was like 13, 14, but not to the point of, I mean, I'd be blagging my way through before they had the automatic barriers, but yeah. I certainly wasn't forging tickets. That's amazing. Guys just obviously had it in them. Uh, the, the, I mean, the book was... As you say, it's it's well received, but it wasn't without criticism. What what were people saying from from a negative perspective? I guess it was just that he, you know he's profiting from his crimes and things, but um, there was, yeah, he went to prison. I mean, it's not. I don't. I, I never had much time for that. It was just a couple of art. There was a few articles, but journalists have got to write something, and I don't mean that in a kind of arsy way. I mean that's that's their job, and it's a, it was an, a fair angle to take on the story, and there was a. Um, yeah, I remember we do we did one interview with a guy. There was a guy from the Sunday Times Scotland, and he was very very friendly, and then he just slaughtered us in this um, in this this article. But I, I, I meant nothing, not something that ever really bothered me, and not something I'd have any great um, in bitterness towards. That's that's you know, people have got to fill a fill a column with something. So yeah, I wouldn't lose too much sleep over that. It it definitely sounds like something that should be made into a film. It's something I would want to see anyway. Because I did I saw a clip of him talking about it for like a couple of minutes I think that was when I mentioned to you because I saw the clip and then I thought wow that's really interesting and I searched it and I saw that you'd written it so at that point I think I was at, I don't know if you remember this I was in Greece and I was like mate what the fuck like, that's right yeah I mean, it's, 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 yeah, it's, it's, it's a big thing like still you know people still get in touch with when they sort of discover it and we, we sold the film rights a couple of times um, Were you not writing a screenplay at some point? I wrote, yeah. So I'm trying to remember. We sold, we sold it to the people that did the Last King of Scotland, and that was going to be, it was going to be a sort of bigger budget thing, and it got very close a couple of times. But you know that that the film world is just, it just goes, it's endless and endless disappointment. So it, it nothing happened there, and then we sold it to someone else, and then I wrote a script, maybe about five or six years ago. Which I think is sort of okay. I don't. I think it probably would still need some work, to be honest. But it, I, I kind of wrote a script. Someone commissioned it just so we could see what the story was and try and mm-hmm. move it on a bit. And then, and now actually, I'm looking at it for possible, possible television adaptation. So there's a bit of um, a bit of interest in that. I think it'd probably be better, to be honest, as a sort of limited series or something, because it's such a there's so much to the story. Yeah, it's good to say. I think it'd be more interesting and more unique. You know, you kind of know what that film is going to be. Really, it's going to be sort of learning the skills, living the life, and then the descent and capture. And that's kind of it's very hard to get away from that that sort of structure. Whereas I think with TV, you could do something really interesting with it and spend some time with some of the other characters and things. So mm. we'll see what happens. Sounds to me like a sort of catch me if you can meets Wolf of Wall Street with a dash of Rab Nesbit in there. There you go. Hi. <laughs> <laughs> hey, um, well, other people's money. If you want to read that. Uh, people do often ask for for book recommendations, so there you go. Uh, you've got that. The what's the process for that there? Because you just before I do move on, you obviously meet up with him. You kind of discuss it. He tells you the story. Do you need to then just sit down with him and just be like, right, just tell me what happened, and then we're going to turn that into that telling that story. 
well, the good thing with it, with, it, with writing other people's money, was that it was a fraud case. So there was a huge amount of paperwork from the trial, yeah. um, and everything has to be given to the defendant. So Elliot had these huge folders of, of it all, and it was credit card statements largely of. So I could track. So he could say, "Look, I think I was in, I think I was in the Caribbean that Christmas," and then I could go and check the credit card statements. Yeah. It was it was the year after or whatever. So. I basically could track those years through these credit card statements. And sometimes I would say, oh, this is from, like, I remember saying this is from Moscow. He went, oh, yeah, I went to Moscow. And he'd forgotten he'd gone there for five days or something. And then, so I had that. But also the the detective, Ralph Eastgate, he cooperated with the book. So he had a lot, and he'd retired then as well. So he, he he didn't really care. And he was so he was he was very open to just chatting through the whole thing, and and he found Elliot he found Elliot quite funny. He he didn't have any, you know, he he just saw Elliot as what he was, you know, a kid that wanted more than he had. And I think um, there there was no great they they kind of had a bit of a laugh together, the two of them. I think once once they realised that Elliot was going to plead guilty and things, um, mm-hmm. so he was he was very cooperative. So I could check a lot of it against these these records, which helped. Was that how he ended up in an open prison through the? Being so cooperative and just pleading guilty, cooperative and it being sort kind of white collar crimes really. You know, it wasn't it wasn't any violence or drugs or anything. So I think yeah. he, he was he spent a bit. He was in Wormwood Scrubs to start with. When I first wrote to him, he was in Wormwood Scrubs, and then he um he got moved down there. Like as a, obviously it's wrong, and there is a, a bit of a domino effect. Whether it's custom general customers picking up the sort of shortfall in some way. When I hear about crimes like that, I kind of think, so what? Like you're robbing well, for banks, you're constantly uh, robbing for people anyway. I th- yeah, I think I think particularly in the early noughties, because that was sort of the real credit boom, and people were, you know, banks were credit card companies were doing everything they could to get people to borrow more money. Yeah. Um, and I remember Elliot one time he did a short prison sentence, very short for one credit card thing, and he came home to. Battlefield. So he'd just gone to prison for credit card fraud and he came back and his mum said, oh, your mail's in your room and it was piles and piles of credit card offers and, you know, they'd send you the cards and say you've been pre-approved and all that stuff. So he came out from committing credit card fraud to about 20 credit cards waiting for him and off he went again. So, no, I mean, look, there's a, there's a cost to it and insurance and charges and things like that. But it was definitely, it was all money that was refunded by the companies. Where do where do you go from there? Then you now you've the book has been released. You've got a whole wealth of experience behind you. Had you been to? I meant to ask about the the um, New York Film Academy as well. Was that pre writing the book or was that post? That was after, after other people's money, after. So I'm trying to remember. I wrote other people's money. Then I wrote the first Bob Servant book. Then I wrote my first novel, and then I went to New York. So at that point, I was sort of. Getting book deals and still doing still doing journalism as well. Um, so, yeah, I think I, I was doing sort of a lot of magazine work and some stuff at the Guardian, and I had a, I think my second novel deal. So I kind of decided to, I could probably just about justify going to New York for a year or two at that point, and that's when I did the, uh, yeah, New York Film Academy. How how was that experience? Or was that with a, a view of how to adapt to to a sort of screenplay? Or was it studying like other yeah. aspects? Yeah, I was just trying to learn screenwriting, and um, I'd written a few books and I'd done sort of long form journalism, um, but I really wanted to try and get into script writing, and I found it quite intimidating in lots of ways. Uh, and they had this really great program there. <clears throat> it was only really short. I think it, I think it was about four months. Then I did an extra two months in the end with the tutor directly in there, but it was it was quite intensive and. Um, it was just, it was brilliant. It was just like a revelation, the way the guy tossed it. And mm-hmm. it, it just, it gave, and, and it gave me confidence as well, because I kind of, you know, you were writing, doing sort of practice, you know, exercises and things. And I could feel myself starting to get a, a wee bit of a grip in it. And um, it gave me a kind of confidence to, to really try and push on with that. It, it seems to me then at that point, it's just a bit of a boom in terms of moving into TV work. I mean, there's so many things. I do want to talk about the, Eric, Ernie, and me as well. Um, did you just feel that you've, I don't know, you're just at a certain point and you're just ready to to go off on one because the the list almost seems sort of endless and they've been 
you know, to you know, rapturous applause or praise or whatever you want to call it. Um, I wish I'd felt that. <laughs> I wish I'd felt that confident. Uh, but I know I kind of. No, I, I mean you must have a wee bit in retrospect looking back, and you can now see the backlog and the back catalogue of work because it's unbelievable. It's yeah, no, I feel very lucky now, and I, I do, I do feel now that I'm, I'm getting a good grip on, on screenwriting, and I feel that um, I'm certainly a flawed writer, but I, I can see the ways that I've improved and grown confident in it, and I feel, I definitely feel much more confident now sitting down to write, to write scripts. I'm not saying everyone will be. In, in a, you know a proper high level but I, I feel like I know what I'm doing to a degree now but for a long time I didn't I felt you know and I, I don't think and I think that might be partially accurate I think some of my earlier work was it was what it was you know and, and I, 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 you learn so much as you go that's the thing you can only learn by doing it um, you can only really learn about script writing when you make your first show but that yeah. means the first show is going to be um, carry some flaws and that's fine that's part of it um so no it was it's been it's been a long time it's probably 12 years since i sat down to write my first sort of scripts and um you know it's it's, it's constant constant learning process and mm-hmm. making mistakes as you go and and um learning from them hopefully try not to make them again or learning what you're good at not what you're not so good at what you need to keep working on it's um, it's an ongoing process Obviously, it was in 2019 when like guilt was was written and, and then created by that point, and it was on was it it was on the BBC Scotland Channel first, and then it was BBC Two. Is that right? Yeah, it went. I think it went a week in advance on the BBC Scotland Channel. So I think they sort of premiered the episodes, and then it right. went on BBC Two the following week from memory. So it was a sort of continuous double transmission. I think. Yeah, really. I mean, and that, that seems like just a bit of an explosion because there's so many so many, um, I don't know, writers or journalists or publications saying, like, this is the pick of the year's TV. You know, you're then, the, the BAFTA's come around, you're now in, in series two. I mean, what was that process like? When you started writing that, did you just think, well, I'm really on to something here? Because it is such a unique concept. No, it was, it was, it was, it was a long old, long old process. I mean, I kind of, uh, I tried to pitch that show in America uh, just as a sort of pitch, really, I hadn't written much of it and nearly got it away, but didn't. And I think that's a good thing, to be honest. I've, I've sold a few scripts over there, but it's they just go into this big black hole and never emerge, you know. So you get, so that was that's what would have happened, you know. Um, so I think it's great I didn't sell it there as a pilot script and I brought it back here and managed to, over years, get it away as a series. Two questions I've got for that. First of all, the big black hole. Why? Why do? Why do production companies do that? Why do they buy stuff and then just bury them? I know sometimes it's so another company can't make it. I still find that crazy. But why? Well, what, sometimes, they what they'll often think is, I think often with their say, for, say their deal is that they end up owning it for two years, then I think they would probably think after six months, right, we've not managed to sell this. But what if that commissioner gets sacked tomorrow? And a new commissioner comes in and says, "Oh, we could do with one more of these," and that suddenly it fits the bill. And um, so I can sort of understand it, but you, yeah, there has been situations I've been in where American companies haven't given me a script back when they've got no intention of trying to sell it, but they don't want that show to go and get picked up somewhere else, and for their boss to say, "Did we not have that? Like, did we not have that?" On a, so that's that can be very frustrating. But in America, I mean, in America, this is a very strange system where it's this pilot system where, well, certainly the big broadcast networks in August they'll commission, they'll maybe hear three hundred pitches, maybe four hundred. From that four hundred, they'll commission about eighty to a hundred scripts in August. You have to write them, get them in by January. In January of those 80 to 100, maybe 10 or 10 to 12, they'll take to pilot. They'll shoot pilots. They'll shoot the pilot, sorry. So they'll film that first episode. And from those 10 to 12 pilot episodes in March or April, they'll pick up maybe one to three shows to series. So from 400 pitches, maybe one or two or three shows will go to series. And even from 90-odd scripts, one or two will go series. So I've sold maybe four or five pilot scripts over there. And uh, it's exciting, you know, going over there and pitching it and everything. But, you know, it might be the best idea you have for years. And you've got about 
two, three percent chance of that getting made. And if it doesn't, then it's tied up for two or three years and it's kind of gone really. Mm. That's absolutely mental. The amount of things that I bet you're sitting in drawers gathering dust that if you were to read it would really excite you in terms of like if you're reading the whole sort of synopsis of a show or a film or something and it's it blows my mind to think that they just they will just sit there and the reasons obviously they, they make sense from their standpoint but for as a consumer or a viewer it's a bit like oh what I would, have, yeah, <laughs> like, I would, really, I would have loved to have seen that it's really frustrating but the one thing you can do as a writer is uh, pilfer pilfer from your back catalogue which I definitely which I definitely do I definitely do that I've definitely nicked characters and storylines and relationships from some of those old scripts and you know nothing's ever truly dead I don't think as a, as a writer mm-hmm. but as a writer as well because you've worked with some massive names like I mean some of the biggest names in in, in the British world of acting especially um do you ever write things with a, a name of I want this person to have it or does it do you just write the character and then you have to find the the person to play them I think it's I think it's good to have someone in mind when you write it because I think it just helps you visualise the character a little bit. And even if that person doesn't end up uh, playing them, it's just helped you along the way, I think. So I've done that a few times and maybe it's someone I know who's shown some interest in it, but then by the time you the time you finish, it's, it's they're just not available or they're doing something else. And Eric Ernie and me, the Eddie Braben character, we met very early with, with a... a probably shouldn't say by him, but like a big actor who was all over it and giving thoughts and, you know, and then he just wasn't available. And so you spend the whole time writing it with this person, but it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. You just get someone else who's, who's great and coming and does it. But Gil, uh, Mark, I'd, Mark was in Eric Ernie and me, played Eric Mark. And I'd written, I think I'd only, I'd maybe written the first episode of Gil at that point. And then I think the Met, the BBC commissioned, it was a real bitty commission, like commissioned a second episode, then a third episode, then we finally got the the series. So I think Mark was in my head from from episode one on, and that really helped. Not so much his performance, just from spending time with him and knowing his voice and the sort of cadence and his sort of um, his humour and the dryness of it and stuff. So that really helped me because he it was pretty clear he was going to play Max at that point when I was writing the later episodes. So that. That was good. I mean, writing the second series is brilliant in terms of the existing cast because I just know their voices. So that's that's very, very helpful. Yeah, probably watching it as well. People will feel that, I don't know, a familiarity as if they get the cast, sorry, or the characters have just settled fully into themselves because they're obviously coming into it as well, knowing, having the, the previous knowledge and experience of just how they're going to play them. Uh, when is the when is the second series going to be going out? I know it's just sort of starting now. To, like, started, yeah, started yesterday, mate. Oh, was it yesterday? It's, uh, I'll have to check my phone, but I think we're still going. <laughs> what's what's <laughs> it turn around, do you know? Oh, um, it's a big old slog. I mean, be filming till February um, with a with a Christmas break, and um, I think I, I I don't know to be honest. I don't know on transmission. It's whether we can. It's whether we can get it out before you don't want to go out in the summer basically so it's whether you can go out before or after but i just don't know i, I know it's going to go out it's going to go at some point next year mm-hmm. you know, all being well with the all being well with the filming have you have you cast anyone interesting any new faces we have and i don't think they're announced yet i think they get i think there's a few getting announced next week so i better not um preempt it but we've cast a yeah, it's a tough. It's a you know, it's 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 a, it's, an, it's a writing challenge with a second series of a show like Guilt of how do you, what do you carry on and what do you bring in. You know, it's the old and the, the combination of the old and the new, and um, hopefully I've kind of worked my way through that. So a lot of the a lot of the brilliant cast from the first series are still in it. Some I'd love to have had in it, but they just didn't work story wise. Yeah. And then some really really exciting new uh, new parts as well. I think. If you are listening and you haven't seen Guilt, I highly recommend it, especially as we head into another lockdown. I want to be sick even just for saying those words. Then it's something that you won't regret watching it, so just go and get on it, and then you can thank me later, and then you can thank Neil as well, because he's the man who who brought it to life. Um, One thing, just a few things, obviously... Having like doing this type of work and and meeting people, you, you find yourself in 
interesting situations. I'm sure you're a man that knows how to enjoy yourself as well. I've got a source. Uh, I can't name him because uh, that's unfair and I wouldn't do that. Gordon Smart, I don't want to throw anybody under the bus. But he's told me a few stories. He's had a few good nights out. Um, I have to ask you about um, the time when you're heading to the Emirates for Scotland versus Brazil. And you told, <laughs> a, you told a tall tale which got you through 10 layers of security. What happened there? Yeah, we were... We were running running very late. I think it was myself and Gordon, maybe my brother Alan. I can't remember. Derek Silly, Ali Ross, a few others. But we were uh, we had a kind of fun day, and we were trying to get. We were very very late getting to the game, and it was um, anyway. I basically said we were in a, we were in a taxi, and I said we were delivering the flags, <laughs> <laughs> flags that they lie out in the centre circle before the game. So we got <laughs> through. Ushered through various roadblocks until we got presented at the front door to considerable confusion, is how I remember it. But uh, anyway, yeah, no, Gordon, Gordon was a great Bob Servant supporter back very early on, and um, he helped a lot with various things with that. So um, he's a good lad. Ah, he's great with stuff like that, isn't he? He was saying it was the, the best and the most mental Jedi mind trick you've ever seen when security <laughs> stopped and you say, I have the flags, and they just let you through. <laughs> yeah, I, I like this stuff a bit. The Football League National Five Asides. The his one was at Upton Park. It was you two, Martin Compton, Derek Stilly in goals. That's yeah. a conclusion, Derek Stilly. Yeah, Derek. Derek's a, a great. He was a, he was a, at United. I think I met him when he was at United. I, used to, I was good pals with Grant Redman and a few others when they were there. And um, Derek then came down to London and trained as a lawyer. So I used to see quite a bit of him. And yeah, we had a great Five Aside team. We were, we had a great summer where we won about two or three of these things, and one was at Upton Park, one was at the Valley. Charlie, remember we had Joe, we had Joe Kulsagi in our team. <laughs> he was a, 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 not the best footballer in the world, but certainly intimidating for the opposition. I, and, uh, I bet you didn't tell him he wasn't playing well either. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, just by text on his way home. Didn't mention it on the day, but yeah. And then little Martin tearing up the wing. I mean, we won about two or three of them over one summer. It was great fun. By, by the way, Martin is obviously everybody knows that his time at Aberdeen and then playing at Morton, um, and obviously plays in the soccer and things. A, a very accomplished footballer. He's a very technically good player. Like he's, yeah. he's calm and composed. Yeah, playing against. Good. I don't know if he, who who he's been playing against for England. Actually, if he's playing rest of the world, but he's obviously playing against some proper legends, and he doesn't look too out of place. It's mental. And I don't know how he keeps his fitness as well with his. Uh... He's a he, he, Jordan, He's a great. Uh, he's a great guy, Martin. He would. He played mid-year in the thing I did. I did a, a thing for Sky backstage at Live Aid, a kind of one-off comedy thing, and he played mid-year in that. And he was very funny. And then he met mid-year. I think uh, a few weeks later, there's some weird thing. Maybe they were both at getting honorary degrees or something, and they were. I think they were at some Strathclyde University thing together. And he bumped in a mid-year who he just played about three weeks before. That's brilliant, man. The um, I don't know if he would have been involved in this. I had never heard of this before, right? And I still need to go and research it because I can't get my head around it. Sealand FC. Yeah, Sealand. Um, so it's a it's a former World War Two fort in the kind of in the Thames estuary. There's a string of these little forts that were supposed to defend the, the Thames during the during the war. And um, mm. the when I wrote for FHM, I found discovered that one of the forts had been taken over by this family called the Bates, and they called it Sealand, and they they announced that they were a independent principality, and he was called he was called Prince Michael, and his sons were the Prince Regents, and they were like I think they were like cockle fishermen from South End, and it's uh, anyway it's this great story, and I got in touch with them, and I went and did a story on it, um, and I stayed in touch, and then it was one World Cup. And I, I got in touch and said, why don't you have a football team? And he said, well, you can start one if you want. So I started the Sealand International Football Team and we played. There's an organization, an organization called Non-FIFA. And it's all, it's any sort of nation that's not part of FIFA. So it's a lot of, but it's like the Vatican, Monaco. And then it just becomes like Swaziland and all these little island yeah. states and and we so we joined non FIFA so we played three full internationals. I've got three international caps. 
as does as does Gordon Ralph Little played. My brother played. Stevie Gordon, my mate. Um, loads. Derek played and stuff. So anyway, we we played three inter, three full internationals. We played Alderney. We we flew down to Alderney and played a game in, the, in one of the Channel Islands. Oh, we played someone else. I can't remember. And then we played we played the Chagos Islands. I remember we played the Chagos Islands at this non-league ground just outside London, and uh, we were all there. And the Chagos Islands are this. So it's Diego Garcia in the Pacific Ocean. There was a set of islands that they they were kicked off, I think, in the sixties by the Americans, so they could build um, they could have it as a naval base, mm-hmm. and they were moved to 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 the UK, given British passports, and they spent the fifty years trying to get back their ancestral home. So it's really quite a sort of serious story, and they and they are based around Crawley and Sussex, a lot of the Chagossian community. So we played them. And we, you know, it was a bit of a laugh for us. We turned up, and they turned up, and there was hundreds of them, and they had like bands and all this stuff. Anyway, so we stood for the national anthem before the game, and there was like local news there and things. And um, they played the Chagossian anthem first, and they were all weeping because it was this is their, you know, this is their big, their their disenfranchised people mm. and their distant homeland. And I was sitting there, <laughs> I was extremely uncomfortable because I knew what was going to come next. Oh, yeah. National Anthem, which was written by a 13-year-old German on his synthesizers. <laughs> 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 They're still drying their tears when it comes over the thing going, we were just in pieces trying to hold it together listening to this. That is unbelievable. I can't believe that exists. That's I, I lived in as a wee boy, I lived in Canvey Island. Right, I lived yeah. in Leon Sea, which is in the Thames Estuary, which is right next to South End. I had yeah. no idea that existed. Yes, it's just off um is it Harwich? Harwich, H A R W I C H is the that's the that's the little port you go to. Because we went out to Sealand yeah. to do this press call where we did like war and me and Derek went, I think it's on YouTube and we were doing warm-up drills on the helipad and things for, like, the local BBC Southeast or something. It was nuts. It was nuts. It was great. great nuts. The fact that when I heard that, I was genuinely, like, really pissing myself laughing because I'm, like, you're, you're captain, like, trying to play against the Vatican and stuff. Like, just <laughs> imagine, like, Pope Francis in goals or, like, <laughs> Pope Francis in the holding midfield role, like, sort of screening the defence. Oh, amazing. Absolutely amazing. I love stuff like that. Um, final one, you might not answer this one. What's the trousers on at the Groucho Club? Are you, I'm sure you'll speak to Martin sometime. I think that Martin can... Uh, I like Martin. Uh, it, was, it, was a game of, it was a game of snooker that um, the stakes got higher and higher. That's all I'll say. Martin, right. Martin, Gordon still obviously started that story and uh, Martin can finish it yeah right I'll, I'll make sure I, I'll save that one for him the final question I, I mean first of all thanks so much for your time mate this has been a, a great no, laugh no. Um, and, and it's a genuine big fan of your work as well I still I know you play it cool and all that but it's a buzz for me um, just to hear about some of the ins and outs of these things so thanks so much for your time I'm sure people enjoy it the pressing question though that that um, I suppose everybody wants to hear and that is quite a serious one and I'll just come out and ask it who's the better Dundee United fan you or Lorraine Kelly me well me. Well, well no look she's, she's obviously been a fan for a long time but I think uh, you, just don't, you think she's just many... a kid on fan she's not a real uh, fan of you well no I think she came to it late I think there's not many things I'd say that I've got particularly strong credentials for but as a Dundee United fan I think my credentials are beyond reproach from uh, tying it from programme selling and, and um, fanzine selling and going home and away during some of the grimmest years <laughs> uh, no I think she's, she's, a, she's a proper she is a proper fan but um, you know it's a great club great club there, there's your headline uh, for any tabloids <laughs> Neil Forsyth slaughters Lorraine Kelly. (laughs) (laughs) No, yeah, no, mate. Thanks again. Thanks very much for this. Uh, And thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed it. Uh, And we'll be back soon, hopefully, with Martin Compton telling us what the trousers on at the Groucho Club is because we have to know. I know, but you need to find out, and I can't tell you. Cheers. Thank you. Thank you, Sean. Cheers. Cheers. 
Leathered was written, recorded and produced by Sean McDonald in association with The Big Light. Music and post-production by Brian McAlpine and for more information, go to thebiglight.com. If you like this podcast, please check out all our other series including Talk Media, You Could Start a Fight in an Empty House, Talking Derry Girls, Brave Your Day, The Tartan Noir Show, Double Scotch, Great Scott, Trust Me I'm a Leader, Unearthed, A Sonic Hug and Old School. All on the Big Light, Scotland's podcast network. From the Big Light Studio.